53, and if you were to compare uh, Psalm 53 to Psalm 14, you would see that they are nearly identical. There are a few changes, and that shows us that uh, though Psalm 14 is, is first, it wasn't all that the Lord wanted to say uh, based on those themes. A worthy study might be to uh, compare those two. We won't do that this evening. Maybe you can do it in uh, closing the Lord's Day, in family worship, or in your private devotions during the week. So let's read Psalm 53, and then after that we'll flip over for a brief reading from Matthew chapter 6. Psalm 53, to the chief musician set to Mahalath, a contemplation of David. The fool has said in his heart, there is no God. They are corrupt and have done abominable iniquity. There is none who does good. God looks down from heaven upon the children of men to see if there are any who understand, who seek God. Every one of them is turned aside. They have together become corrupt. There is none who does good. No, not one. Have the workers of iniquity no knowledge. They who eat up my people as they eat bread and do not call upon God. There they are in great fear where no fear was. For God has scattered the bones of him who encamps against you. You have put them to shame because God has despised them. Oh, that the salvation of Israel would come out of Zion when God brings back the captivity of his people. Let Jacob rejoice and Israel be glad. Amen. Then Matthew 6, verse 19 to 34. Matthew 6, verses 19 through 34. It doesn't say you should not. It says, do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. The lamp of the body is the eye. If therefore your eye is good, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If therefore the light that is in you is darkness, how great is that darkness? No one can serve two masters. For either he will hate the one and love the other, or else he will be loyal to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and mammon. Therefore I say to you, do not worry about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink, nor about your body, what you will put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? Which of you, by worrying, can add one cubit to his stature? So why do you worry about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. Yet I say to you that even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. Now if God so clothes the grass of the field, which today is, and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? Therefore, do not worry, saying, what shall we eat or what shall we drink or what shall we wear? For after all these things, the Gentiles seek. For your heavenly Father knows that you need all these things. But seek first the kingdom of God 
and his righteousness, and all these things shall be added to you. Therefore, do not worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow will worry about its own things. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. Amen. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God endures forever. Amen. Evidently, the Lord would have for us the theme of political incorrectness this Lord's Day. For Psalm 53 begins with a uh, politically incorrect statement. Anyone who denies the existence of God is a fool. The Lord himself says, anyone who does not believe that God is, based on God's judgment, is a fool. If you wanted to take a a woodenly literal translation of verse 1, it would say, the fool has said in his heart, no God, no God, not no comma God, no God, that there is no God. Similar to our message from 1 Samuel 15 this morning, the Lord will speak honestly about sin. He will speak honestly about unbelief. The Lord does not call those who deny that he is anything remotely near what you might term as nice, or popular word today is winsome. He does not care about those things. He is truth. His word is truth. He labels them by his spirit through the pen of David as fools. It is one of the most condemnatory terms used in all of Scripture. But you know, as well as I do, that there is a bit of irony in this, at least in our experience. Those who deny God's existence claim to be enlightened. They claim to have a better understanding In fact, they would call you a fool. Notice what else the Lord says of them in Psalm 53. He says they are corrupt, and not just that they have done iniquity, but that they have done abominable iniquity. Think of the word abomination, right, where God only describes certain sins in this way. And he uses that term more in the Old Testament than he does the New, though it's present in both. He says that they have done abominable iniquity. Children, this is not just bad. This is real bad. Those who deny that God is. And he says that they do not do good. In some sense, we can say that it is impossible for them to do good. If you want to turn in the back of your hymnal to Confession of Faith 16.7, I'm going to read a little section there. Uh, to kind of highlight uh, what I believe is being uh, stated here in Psalm 53. But in Confession of Faith 16.7, it speaks of works done by unregenerate men, those who are unbelievers. Um, And then, much like uh, we talked about good works and the proper understanding of that this morning, this will maybe shed some more light on that. As they say on page 857, the very last paragraph there in the bottom right-hand corner, says, works done by unregenerate men, although for the matter of them they may be things which God commands and of good use both to themselves and others. Yet, because they proceed not from a heart purified by faith, nor are done in a right manner, that is according to the word, 
nor to a right end, which is the glory of God, they are therefore sinful and cannot please God or make a man meet or ready or equipped to receive grace from God. And yet, their neglect of them is more sinful and displeasing unto God. Indeed, we might say in the words of Psalm 53, they are committing abominable iniquity. Notice the denials there. Their good works, so-called, or the works of unregenerate men, meaning those who are not Christians, those who are unbaptized and deny the faith of Christ, their works are not done properly, even if they are done in some sense according to uh, the law or God's commands. They do not come from a heart of faith. They are not done for the right reason, that is, to a right end or to the glory of God. And if anything can be said about those, it is that they are sinful. Not just they in their persons, but their works are not good. They do no good. None who does good is what God declares of them. This sermon, again, it could be connected to what we discussed this morning relating to good works. This this passage strikes uh, very close to home for any of you who have considered the doctrine of what is often called total depravity, right? Total depravity, that those who are outside of the mercy of God are sinful in such a way that they are totally depraved, not that they are as sinful as they possibly could be, for God in his grace restrains even the wickedest of men, but that they are unable to bring themselves to salvation, that they are unable to even make themselves prepared for salvation. They cannot do good. We as Christians so often fall into patterns of sin, and we imagine that when we read Psalm 53, that we see ourselves. That cannot be the case for those who are in Christ. Notice the contrast he makes. We'll get to it a little more in a minute. But in verse 4, he says, These who he is speaking of, those whom he is speaking of, the workers of iniquity with no knowledge, they are those who eat up the people of God and do not call upon God. Christians, even when they struggle in obedience, that cannot be said of them because they have the Spirit of God. It helps us to see that this condemnation of Psalm 53, it does not fall on the people of the Lord. It falls on those who eat up the people of God as they eat bread. If you're looking at the New King James, I don't know what the New American Standard does with it. I know it's another translation that capitalizes pronouns uh, that refer to uh, the, um, the Lord, uh, the persons of the Godhead is the term I was looking for. Um, but in verse 4, uh, where it says, who eat up my people, you would expect that the M there in my would be capitalized. But again, this shows the difficulty of doing that in a Bible translation because the translators have to make decisions about who is being referred to when it's ambiguous. You know, throughout the New King James, you have, uh, just as you do in, uh, let's see, if you look up at Psalm 52, Verse 9, I will praise you forever, capital Y, because you, capital Y, have done it. There's no indication in the Hebrew 
the, the first letter of the sentence is not capitalized in Hebrew. It doesn't say in a footnote in the Hebrew Bible, hint, hint, this is talking about God. They have to make that decision. And 99% of the time, they're right in doing this, but apparently this one was not one that they thought uh, referred to God. Because uh, you compare it in other, as I did, other copies of the New King James, and my is left uncapitalized. Kind of a side note, but interesting nonetheless. There's more that the Lord has to say about those who deny his existence. Verse 2 tells us that he looks down from heaven and he sees them. He gives them a particular name here to contrast them from or contrast them with the people of God. He calls them the children of men. Another term that is used in the the scriptures, not just in the Old Testament, but in the New, would be the children of the earth, right? The same idea is present here. Those who are not known by identifying with the Lord, they remain on the earth, as it were. They have not yet aligned themselves with the God of heaven. He says that they are supposed to be, the implication is they're supposed to be seeking after God. Do you remember a few weeks ago when we preached on uh, Acts 17, I was doing an apologetics type sermon. But in Acts 17, verse 27, it, uh, or starting at verse 26, it says, God has made from one blood every nation of men to dwell on all the face of the earth and has determined their pre-appointed times and the boundaries of their dwellings so that they should seek the Lord in the hope that they might grope for him and find him, though he is not far from each one of us. Paul says here to those at the Areopagus in Athens, that God has placed us where we are, when we are, in order to seek him. But Psalm 53 says, when God looks on those who mistreat his people, when God looks down upon the children of the earth, those who do not know him, those who deny his existence, indeed they do not seek him. They are not fulfilling their chief end, we might say. God looks from heaven and he doesn't see what is required. He sees that they are turning more and more from him. They have together become corrupt, all those who turn against the Lord and his people. Verse 3, it starts with, every one of them has turned aside. Well, turned aside from what? Well, from seeking God, from their true purpose, the reason that they were made. Verse 6 lets us know that this is something of an exile psalm. Uh, Therefore, it seems safe to say that this psalm is contrasting for us Two types of people. It imagines the people of God in a situation where they are surrounded, as it were. Uh, Verse 5 says that those who are encamping against you, right? It imagines the people of God as having uh, enemies encamped around them. You know, sometimes in the history of the people of God, it can can seem like that in the church. That there are enemies encamped around those who affirm and love the truth, even within the church. But we also know from the many... Uh, prophecies and uh, writings of the prophets in, in the Old Testament that the people did actually go into physical exile because of spiritual sins that they had committed. So this psalm could be really applied to both of those circumstances. And there are two types of people when you're in exile. There are those who are the people of God and those who are the children of men. There are those who are Christians and those who are to use a word that fits verse 1, those who are atheists, those who do not call upon God, are essentially atheists. They are workers of iniquity with no knowledge. They are scattered 
because they encamp against the Lord's people. God has and will continue to put them to shame, the text tells us. And another politically incorrect statement, the end of verse 5. God has despised them. Many people have a line that they like to say, love the sinner and hate the sin. There's truth in that. God loves all those in some general way that he has made who bear his image. But you can't get away from the fact that the Bible says God doesn't just hate sin. He hates sinners. He despises sinners. He despises those who deny his existence. And David concludes the psalm by crying out for deliverance from these fools, those who were encamped against him. Were this to occur, we would see verse 6, that we would see salvation of the covenant people that comes out of Zion. It would be God bringing back his people from captivity, whether they were in simply a spiritual exile with, among their own or whether they were in physical exile in a foreign land like Babylon. It would be God restoring his people. And as they wait for it, I would say not just that they would rejoice and be glad when it happens, but that they would rejoice and be glad eagerly awaiting what they know the Lord would accomplish. So let me close with a couple points of application here. Something that can teach you a tremendous amount about your faith is understanding what you've been delivered from. Because without the grace of God, verse 1 would describe you. Whether you would use those words out of your mouth or not, you would live and say with your actions, even if you wouldn't say it with your mouth, that there is no God. Even you, children, would be falling prey to this. You, children and adults, have been delivered from saying that there is no God. You have been delivered by the mercy of God from being a fool. Rejoice in this. Children, thankfully, this is probably hard for you to grasp because you've been taught of him since you were born. But there are people that deny that God is even real. There are people who deny that God is even in existence. Thank the Lord that you are not among them. The second thing, this message applies, as I handed at earlier, within the church as well. The Lord Jesus worked to prove that those who led the church in his day were denying God. You see it in his arguments in the Gospel of John. They claimed to follow Moses. Jesus said, if you followed Moses, you would follow me. Ergo, you don't actually follow Moses. Ergo, you don't actually hold to the Old Testament scriptures. You simply affirm them in letter, but not in spirit. This can happen within the church. Remember that when Jesus preaches in the Gospels, he is preaching to the leaders of the church of his day. Those whom were about to be judged, those whom uh, God was going to redeem his people from. He didn't just redeem his people uh, from sin. He redeemed him from their enemies as well, that they might serve him freely, just as he did in the Exodus. And the Lord Jesus, again, he worked to prove that we can even face this within the church, that we can be surrounded by those. The, the enemies of God can encamp against the faithful even within the visible church. If you worked in reverse up this psalm, like if you started at verse 6 and read back to the beginning rather than starting at verse 1 and reading to the end, 
you'd see that part of the point of describing wickedness in this way, part of the reason that God describes sinners in this way, is to show that those who live in unbelief are functionally atheists, whether they'd admit such or not. Third thing, the Lord does not overlook the mistreatment of his people. I encourage you this morning that the Lord deals with his enemies. This psalm teaches us the very same thing. He looks down from heaven on the unbelieving and he sees what they desire to do to the church or what they are doing to the church. And as we heard with the Amalekites this morning, when God slaughtered both young and old and all the animals, the livestock, he totally destroyed the people. He does not forget how people treat his church. And fourth, I would encourage you to rejoice and be glad no matter the circumstances. Because in Jesus Christ, we have experienced the salvation that comes out of Zion. God has brought back his people from captivity to the, through the Lord Jesus Christ. It doesn't mean that there is no time to mourn, but it does mean as Christians, those who are filled with the spirit of the living God, that you can do both. The Lord Jesus has filled you with his spirit to give you true affections of the soul. Rather than being an imbalanced person, you can pursue the balance that comes with the spirit. And then lastly, to draw from our reading from Matthew chapter 6. When we're surrounded by people like Psalm 53 describes, indeed, it seems to be that we live in an age where we are surrounded by people like Psalm 53 describes, those who, even if they would affirm God with their lips, they would deny him with their actions. I would encourage you from Psalm uh, Matthew 6 not to worry. Do not worry about what your life, do not worry about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink. Do not worry about the way that you will be treated. Today has its own troubles. Jesus said, tomorrow we'll worry about its own things. Isn't it the case whenever we face difficulty in life, whenever we face especially the enemies of God encroaching upon us? And sometimes those enemies are not, uh, we've mentioned the church, we've mentioned society, but sometimes those people are within our own family. Enemies of God. And we can be given to worry. We can imagine that the Lord will not provide, that he will not give us the clarity of thought and how to deal with them. We can be given over to a, uh, an unnecessary spirit of, of self-examination and cause Psalm 53 to be about us rather than about them. But remember, in the Lord's call to you to not worry, remember that he has provided salvation. That that salvation in Jesus Christ, the faith that he has given you by grace, enables you to look with understanding on those situations. It enables you to pray rightly. And quite frankly, it enables you to do good. It enables you to say that there is a God and that he is good, that he loves you, and that he has by his grace through his Son and Spirit brought you to be a member of his people. Amen. Let's pray. Our Lord in heaven,